Welcome to Cake the Podcast, the podcast about cake from State Library of Queensland. This is the show that unravels the sweet and not-so-sweet stories behind our favourite desserts to understand how we got here. I'm Caitlin Sorey, and in today's episode, we're meeting three women from regional Queensland, a socialite, an immigrant, and a working mum, who use their perseverance and love of cakes to show that a woman's place can be in the kitchen and the boardroom. We start with a woman who was told to burn her first cookbook, only to have it end up in the hands of Queen Victoria. There'd be photos of Hannah and her 15 Pekingese dogs with bibs on them with their names. Just a lifestyle that you're thinking, oh, wow, I can't imagine that. Mrs Hannah McClurkin was a celebrity in her day, but she started out in much less glamorous circumstances, climbed her way to the top of Australia's social scene and became the first female director of a publicly listed company. I am fascinated by her. If you think about what Hannah's like and if you think about her great-grandchildren and you think, who, who's got Hannah's determination and grit and who's got Hannah's drive and who's got Hannah's business sense? And we've all probably got snippets of something. This is Kate Atkinson, formerly McClurkin, and she's the great-granddaughter of Hannah McClurkin. Growing up, Kate was surrounded by statues and great heavy dark wood furniture, things her great-grandmother had owned when she was the proprietor of the Wentworth Hotel, the hottest spot to be seen in Sydney. We had in a sideboard, there were always these big black magazines that were hardbound and they were magazines from the hotel. There would always be sort of social snippets and sort of updates on what Hannah was doing. So there'd be a ball and then they'd say who was at the ball and violet was the colour of the season and the corsages of this season were blah, 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 blah. It was very much a, a little snippet of a time and a period and a place. But before she became a success, Hannah's mum died in childbirth, so she was working for her keep from a young age. Hannah ran one of her father's hotels in Brisbane at just 15 years old. She would have learnt that from a very in-house way and probably was doing things at a very young age that most young people were not doing in terms of whether it was bookkeeping or, you know, working out how to shop for produce, anticipating so many guests and working out all that sort of logistics of catering and cookery and running service. At 20, Hannah marries a banker, has a couple of kids, and while returning from England, is on a boat caught in the tidal wave caused by the eruption of Krakatoa, a volcano that exploded with the force of a 200 megaton bomb. It threw up so much ash into the atmosphere, it cooled the entire planet for months. The eruption in Indonesia was one of the world's deadliest volcanoes, killing 36,000 people. And Hannah wrote later, we sailed through the debris of the explosion, sea covered with pumice stone, floating bodies, human and animal. But Hannah wasn't gonna let a near-death experience slow her down. None of this sort of, oh, I have to stay home, I've got children. Nope, I'm off, I'm going, I'm here, I'm there. And so I think she was obviously incredibly willful to just go and do what she was going to go and do. And Krakatoa's not going to stop me. I don't know. I wish I was a bit more like that. Within a few years, her first husband passes. She marries again and has another couple of kids. So even at that, that time, it would have been such a... I don't want to say scandalous, but an uncommon thing for a woman to have had multiple husbands despite being widowed. 
but just having children from different marriages. It just would have been like, you're out there. She moves to far north Queensland to manage a well-to-do hotel in Townsville. And this is where Hannah McClurkin starts to become a household name. Lord Lamington, yes, that one, the governor of Queensland, stays at the hotel and publicly commends her cooking as exceptionally good. A few months later in 1898, she publishes her first cookbook, Mrs McClurkin's Cookery Book, a collection of practical recipes specifically suitable for Australia. And it's interesting when you read the ingredients in the cookbooks, they don't exactly invite you to think, oh, I can't wait to have a dinner party and serve tongue in aspic or suet pudding or whatever, but she did take a lot of things like kangaroo and lemon myrtle and a lot of things that are now coming back into vogue that are considered, for want of a better word, local produce. And she was cooking with that then. But the road to getting published was not an easy one. She sailed to Sydney and Melbourne to be repeatedly rejected by publishers and, according to writer Karen Bates, was advised to save her money by burning her manuscript. Harsh. But Hannah wasn't going to take no for an answer and decided to self-publish. She marched back to Townsville, helping the printer to set the type, which she bought herself, and the finished version featured a foreword from none other than Mrs Lord Lamington. It was so popular, she had to print more copies within a few weeks. Kate was gifted a copy when she was a teenager. Oh, I've got it here. It's not overly big. It's probably... You know, it fits in your hand. It's hardcover. It's got a red leather-bound cover. Obviously, there's no photos. You know, it's just this very succinct little cookbook, Mrs McClurkin's cookbook. But this little cookbook featuring hundreds of recipes adapted to cooking in the Australian climate would go on to be reprinted in 20 different editions. By the third edition, there are 30-odd pages of ads before you get to any recipes. The cake section is very of its time. Things like rock cake and a good plain cake and Victoria sponge cake. In fact, it became so popular she had a British edition made which she presented to Queen Victoria. But despite all of her success, Hannah McClurkin wasn't satisfied. She moved to Sydney and set about making her new hotel the it place to be. And for Kate, this is where Hannah's story really begins. It's almost like Hannah didn't exist until the Wentworth existed, if that makes sense. I think she saw Sydney and I think she had a vision for it and thought, I'm going to create a hotel that will not just be recognised nationally, I want to be recognised internationally. So she had a big picture. And, you know, whether that came from travelling on the high seas and when she saw Krakatoa go, she went, well, life's short, I'm going to go for it and I'm going to put us on the map. But you kind of want to ask that question. You want to ask her and say, what drove you? What was it, what was the impetus that made you go, I'm going to prove this or I'm going to achieve this? Hannah quickly set about turning an average hotel into an international icon, completely renovating the hotel, adding extra floors, an electric lift and car park. You know, she designed the hotel to have a large area where you could promenade so that you could come and you could have your high tea and then you could walk and you could be seen in your lovely dress that you got in the colour of the season. And, and it would be talked about and people aspired to being mentioned or seen. So I think it became the place. Even hosting the Prince of Wales with extravagant meals. She did a dish that was just made up of chicken oysters. Chicken oyster? So I don't know if you know the underside of a chicken. There are two little 
I don't know if they're glands or what, but they're like a little oyster of just pure chicken meat. And obviously because it's under the underside, it's juicy. And this whole dish was just of those chicken oysters, which if you think about it, just seems so incredibly decadent, you know, the prince is coming, so let's just serve him the chicken oysters and we need 30 chickens to produce enough oysters to make a meal. That's just opulence straight up. The Wentworth was so successful that Hannah took it public and in 1912 she became Australia's first female director of a publicly listed company. You know, she had to answer to a board of directors, shareholders. To me it almost feels unreal because if you think about how hard that is for any woman to achieve in the modern world, she must have been extraordinary because she must have faced a certain amount of gender rebuttal. She would have had to really know her mind, know herself and have absolute confidence to know that she could do it and don't tell me I can't because I'm going to and she did and you sort of think, Wow, that's that's big stuff. I'm like, yeah, go back 100 years, it'd be huge. Hannah's legacy continues. The hotel got bought out by Qantas in the 50s, and when they rebuilt, they kept the name. It's now the Sovitel Wentworth Hotel. From surviving Krakatoa to surviving the Irish famine, our next woman-led dynasty put Toowoomba on the map and built an international legacy that lasted 100 years. Ellen O'Brien co-founded Defiance Mill in Toowoomba and her great-grandchildren still remember spending most of their childhood hanging out at the mill. We spent a lot of time watching big strong men stack wheat at the back. They would be barefoot and they'd be lumping wheat sacks. This is Ellen Morosini, formerly Ellen O'Brien. We're meeting her at her house where she still lives in Toowoomba. Yes, I am named after my (laughs) great-grandmother. Yeah, so I carry that that responsibility in a way. (laughs) The original Ellen O'Brien was born a few years after the Great Famine of the mid-1800s that devastated Ireland, killing almost a million people and forcing another two million to flee the country and migrate overseas. It triggered huge unrest between farmers and landlords and would lead to what history books call the Land War. The famine was terrible. Ireland was cold, it always is cold, (laughs) and bleak, I think, a lot of the time. Having lost both her parents, Ellen was now an orphan. Left with nothing, she got on a boat to Australia. She didn't have any siblings, so, you know, she comes to Australia with a friend, and it's a new life. I think it would have been quite exciting in one way, you know, for a 21-year-old to start a new life and to come here and... I mean, Clifton would have been cold, but nothing like Ireland, you know. But little did she know, her adventure was only just beginning because that friend she came to Australia with had a cute stepbrother. Margaret's stepbrother, Patrick, married Ellen. So it's a great story. And, of course, they had ten children. Ten kids. And they had the grocery store and a produce store. And Patrick ran the produce store and Ellen the grocery store. And when you've got 10 kids and two businesses, there's always room for more. George Crisp was an Englishman and was working for the other mill, the opposition mill in Toowoomba, the Dominion Mill. And apparently he was unhappy with with his position. So um, Ellen and Patrick combined with him to start the Defiance Mill. And we think that 
George Crisp came up with the name Defiance. We're not quite sure where it came from, but <laughs> he was in defiance to the opposition. Exactly. Somehow, with 10 kids and three businesses, things are going well. The Defiance Mill in Toowoomba is so successful, they expand to Brisbane. But suddenly, Ellen's world comes to a screeching halt. Patrick didn't have good health and died in 1906 when the youngest of their children was only four. So Ellen looked after them and ran the business after that. Suddenly, the fortunes of the family are all on Ellen. She was a strong woman. I think she ruled the family fairly strongly. And yes, I think Ellen had the business head. So even with 10 children and no husband, Ellen not only kept the mill running, she found a way to keep the farmers going as well. In her time of need, she chose to give. Ellen had a very good relationship with the farmers. There was droughts, as there always are droughts, and the farming families were having a hard time, so, you know, she wouldn't charge them for, for anything and she was sending food out to them and stuff like that. She was very generous and helpful. Ellen has a letter from 1978 that remembers her great-grandmother's special relationship with the farmers. My mind goes back across the years as I remember that most wonderful business lady affectionately. My husband's mother used to tell me that the farmers from Moringandan and districts used to bring their grain and produce into Toowoomba in those days by horse and dray to O'Brien's Grain Merchants Building in Russell Street. Imagine it would take hours to arrive and Mrs O'Brien would always have a table set out with the biggest teapot she ever saw and there would be sandwiches for all. Can't you imagine these people, how much they would enjoy it? Then came a big drought. They were all really poor folk, nothing to sell or buy to buy food for their families. Then they would remember their wonderful friend. Yes, Mrs O'Brien would lend the money to buy food till things came good after the rains came. So, yeah, so she was, you know, she was obviously really generous. With the farmers afloat, Defiance Mill was strong. In fact, she wanted to expand. But her plans to build a new mill would hit a roadblock. She needed a loan from the bank to start the new mill, a widow with 10 children. <laughs> There's lots of liabilities in, in that situation. So the bank weren't willing to help, but the farmers came to her help. With the farmer's support, she builds another mill and Defiance becomes the backbone of industry in Toowoomba. It was 24 hours. The shifts, you know, they, they ran 24 hours. Eventually, Ellen O'Brien passes in 1924 and the family business is handed over to her many, many children. In particular, one son steps up. I think it was difficult for TP because he was fairly young. TP was this Ellen's grandfather. He had nine siblings who all in some way or another, had shares in the mill, you know. So... So everyone gets a say. <laughs> yes. Well, to, to a certain extent. But he had to keep all his um, brothers and sisters and their families happy as well. I think he always suffered from anxiety and ulcers, from the responsibility of running the business. But even though TP was a bit anxious, he set about modernising Defiance Mill and setting it up to become an international business. His three sons followed him into the business, including Ellen's dad, and Defiance rapidly expanded, setting up bakeries all over Queensland and New South Wales, exporting to Asia and Papua New Guinea. And then as women entered the workforce in the 1960s, Defiance food scientists and bakers came up with pre-mixed cake packets that were sold at Coles, Woolworths and Franklin's, dominating the market in Australia. 
we were all very proud of Defiance and what it was doing, yes. Because I'm assuming that nothing got made in the house without Defiance flour. Or you wouldn't be game. No, no, it was, you didn't even mention the opposition, let alone use their flower. (laughs) And eventually, Ellen joined the business as well and saw the computer age kicking off. I remember seeing the first word processor (laughs) and thinking, wow, you can actually backspace and delete things. (laughs) After spending years on the typewriters, banging away with your fingers, and then, of course, we got computers. But computers... Well, you know, one for one for the whole office to start with. You know, the idea of everyone having a computer on their desk was just unbelievable, you know. (laughs) But it happened fairly quickly. By the 90s, Defiance was such a big company that international players started to eye them up for acquisition and the family was split over what to do. Was that decision a hard one for the family to decide to sell? yes. Yeah, very hard because we were very proud of the company and of what it had achieved and... There's a lot of people in the company that we were all friends and a lot of them had worked in the business forever, you know, so um, it was really hard. But these things can't go on forever. In 1997, 99 years after Ellen and Patrick O'Brien founded the mill, their descendants voted to sell the family business. But Ellen's legacy still lives on. There's a good chance if you go to your local supermarket, you can still find Defiance flour on the shelves. Our next lady legend is a regional success who hit the big time with her cake business during the pandemic. She went from small town business owner to international cake fluencer, but she never meant to be a cake maker. Like if you'd said to me like six years ago, oh, you're going to be like a cake decorator and go to shows and stuff, I'd be like, whatever, (laughs) going to be a fitness instructor. (laughs) This is Cassie Watney of Cass Cakery. Growing up, she was more of a pie girl. So my mother was born in America, so it was always like apple cobblers and peach cobblers and pies and pumpkin pie, all of those like really traditional American desserts. She grew up in Tasmania, but her brother's Queensland wedding would change everything. I came for a 10-day holiday to visit Jared and never left (laughs) 16 years ago. So his sister married my brother and we met at their wedding and got married 11 months later. Wow. Yeah. We were 19 when we got married, so we were very young. But when you know, you know. Oh, you're a Queenslander now. Yeah, I feel like I am. I feel like I've nearly lived half my life here. So, When Jared got a job in the mines, Cass followed him nine and a half hours northwest of Brisbane to the regional town of Emerald. It was very hot. I don't think I ever fully climatised to Emerald Summers. They're like next level. Four kids later... Cass was a stay-at-home mum, and life in Emeralds was good. But she couldn't help thinking about her husband being stuck underground all day. So he was literally, like, in the dark, in sludgy mud, 14 hours a day. Most of the time, like, just driving, like, a grader or something. And don't get me wrong, it's a great income, but I, like, wanted him to get job satisfaction as well because he'd just repeatedly do the same things and then never see the end product. And he, for so long, was just like, I need to provide for my family. And I know a lot of men do this. They'll do it for, like, 40 years of their lives. And I was like, no, I want him to be able to have more. Like, because he really did, like, allow me to stay at home with the kids, parent the way I want to parent. And I was like, it's my turn to do something so that he can, you know, have some freedom in his life. 
So she started thinking about how she could make some extra cash. I wanted to make extra money so we could go on family holidays or do like that extra stuff and to have some sort of savings because we were just living week to week. We both grew up quite poor, really, I guess you would say. And I was like, how do I like pivot so that we don't go down the same path? And so I was like, what can I do? (laughs) She knew she needed to do something, but what? Ironically, just before I started Cakes, I actually paid like $1,500 to a certificate for in fitness. And then I never even finished a single module because (laughs) I made like a Woolworths mud cake hack, which is literally just Woolworths mud cakes that you stack, like ice and stack, for one of my kids' birthdays and posted it to my personal Facebook page. And then somebody was like, oh, can you make my kid one? I was like, yeah, sure, if you like Woolworths mud cakes. Which they're delicious, don't get me wrong. So I made a couple and then I like started getting tagged in like local Facebook groups, like looking for a cake maker. I was like, I'm not a cake maker. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should like actually like start baking. So in between juggling four kids and keeping a home, Cass started baking up a storm in her tiny kitchen. She was working like crazy. It was chaos. I burnt myself out a lot. And I think this often happens in the early days of small businesses. You take on too much, you don't know how to say no. And then you're like burning the candle at both ends and you get like resentful to the family because then they want you and you're like, but I've been working all day. And I was like doing like, I don't know, 10 cakes a week. And people would like message me and be like, yeah, I can do it. Cause I was like, oh, it's that extra money. The first few years were a little bit, a little bit crazy. Charlie must have only been like two. So he was still little. I don't even know like what he was doing. (laughs) I'm sure I looked after him, like he's alive, he's fine. But I just made it work. I think a lot of mums do that. I probably like had some meltdowns where I was like, I just need to finish this cake. With orders coming out of her ears and a toddler in the midst of the terrible twos, Cass was barely keeping her head above water. And then the council showed up. So I I started playing with like different recipes, different buttercreams. And then I got reported to council from someone, I don't know who. So council knocked on my door and were like, you're making cakes without a food license. And I was like, I'm not very good. So like, but they're actually really nice and very encouraging. Um, So I think my business was like registered and I had a food license like two weeks later. And I like was booked out ever since then. Wow. So word just got around, Cass makes cakes, yeah. get them. Yeah, pretty much. And then COVID hit. With everyone stuck at home looking for something to do, Cass saw an opportunity to evolve. Yeah, I actually never went to a class, which is funny because now I teach them, but I was remote during COVID. And then once I started sharing videos, it just kind of snowballed. She went from having a 1,000 followers at the end of 2020 to a global audience of almost 250,000 people. Yeah, it's quite funny, like, how big Cascakery got being in such a small town. My biggest following base is actually the UK and USA and then Australia. And a lot of people in different countries use my recipe, so a lot of them will message me and like, what is full cream milk? And I think it's like cream and I'm like, oh, in America it's whole milk. Is that kind of a bizarre feeling, like being so remote but being so online. Yeah, because so many people didn't realise like where Emerald was or what it was. I think they all thought I must have been in some like major capital city or something. 
Cass was busier than ever. She started selling online courses and templates for her cake shapes. But her husband, Jared, still wasn't convinced. I think Jared used to get a bit frustrated. Be like, why are you working so much? And the turning point was when I paid for us to go to the Maldives for like a wedding anniversary holiday. And that was when he was like, something must have like clicked in his head because he was like, oh, Cassie paid for this trip. And it wasn't like a cheap trip. And he was like, yeah, we wouldn't have been able to do this if you weren't doing that. And so I think basically after that, he started referring to cakes as work. Realising that Cass was onto something potentially life-changing, Jared asked if he could help. I think after our first financial year of like having the templates and he realised, oh, actually, like this could be something, he like really stepped in and then we like decide to take over production ourselves. Like we invested our own money in buying like lasers. He taught himself how to use them. So like when he saw like the full potential, he like stepped up in a big way. Which led to its own problems they had to figure out. I was like, yeah, join the business. And then every time he'd make a suggestion, I'd be like, no, no, we're not doing it like that because I do it like this. Because I think it was like my baby and I was like so proud of what I'd done. But if he hadn't stepped in, it wouldn't be where it is now because he's very logical and quite business minded. I'm great at like marketing myself. I'm great at the creativity side, but he's like the workhorse. So like together, we work really well as a team. So when he stepped fully into the business and I actually allowed him to, like everything we've done together has made it what it is now, if that makes sense. Cass Cakery has become so successful, Jared has been able to leave the mines. I've always been like a bit of a, I guess, a goer. And like if I put my mind to something, I would do it well. But I had ze- I had no intention of Cass Cakery turning into what it's turned into when I started But I had set a goal like seven years ago that whatever I did and did well, I really wanted Jared to be able to leave the mines and move. I didn't know cakes would do that. And now they've left Emerald and moved to Toowoomba. It's easier for Cass to travel to cake shows and classes. And they've even built their own commercial space. But yeah, literally all just started from me making cakes in my kitchen. Whether it's Hannah McClurkin choosing to self-publish the cookbook she was told to burn, Ellen O'Brien's decision to back the farmers with no guarantee on a return, or Cass Watney's decision to start a business to save her husband from the mines, it's clear that with a little self-belief, a woman's place is wherever she wants it to be. I like was a very low self-esteem, insecure person when I very first started. Lots of self-doubt. And I think in order for a business to grow, you have to grow because anytime something scary pops up, you'll just be like, oh, can't do it. And you just like squash it. So I feel like my cakes were like a reflection of my internal growth. So the better my cakes got, the healthier my own relationship with myself was and my self-belief and confidence. It's like each cake was like a stepping stone in my journey. Every episode in this series, we want to learn some tips from a master. So far, we've made the original Lamington recipe and my grandma Dean's pineapple pie. So what does Cass have for us? Every episode, we want to master a cake. Mm-hmm. Is there a cake we should try to master? As in, you guys are going to make it? Mm-hmm. Well, you can do one of my heart template cakes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm well known for them. That's like my signature, my signature class. I'll even give you a heart template to take home. So what's your tips for making a heart cake? Well, it's a really good starter cake because you literally just bake sheet cakes. 
use the template to cut both the layers out and then it's just piping and if your piping's not amazing you put cute little decorations on top so I feel like it's a really good starter cake for like mums that want to bake cakes for their kids but they're scared to tackle like a taller cake. Okay it's the time to give it a go. I've got my defiant self-raising flour. I've got my mum's chocolate cake recipe which is amazing it's really good and I've got Cass's heart-shaped template so I'm going to make two sheet cakes and stack them and do the icing like Cass suggested. Alright so this is turning into a little bit of a mess. I cut out the heart shape from the sheet cake and it kind of fell apart but that's okay because I've just covered it in icing which is pretty badly piped. I'm just gonna cover it with sprinkles or something and I'll hide it all. Cass uses a mud cake recipe which is much more structurally sound and it's really good. So if you're keen to learn off Cass, her details are in the show notes. Also, we'll pop a picture up to show my attempt versus her creation. Next episode, we're headed to Sherberg. It's beautiful, yes. <laughs> now you're making me hungry. To find out what sweet treats can be made from rations. It's amazing how many people don't know what happened on this community. It's just mind-blowing. Like any good cake, Cake the Podcast is best when shared. Leave a review and subscribe to show the love. Cake the Podcast is an FNK production for State Library of Queensland. <laughs>